just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Sometimes I just feel like spitting, I still might. Why put up a fight? Why do I still write? Sometimes it's hard enough dealing with new highs. Sometimes I just want to jump on these tracks and just kill mics and talk to my people about AI and price hikes, equal weights and yield spikes, highlights and low lights, chip stocks and proxy fights. I'm hearing animal spirits telling us to take flight. We need perspective to get us through the night. Let's take the Investopedia Express, where everything's all right. Welcome back and welcome aboard and rally resumed. Thanks to NVIDIA and a few other AI-related companies, stock markets in the US, Europe, and Japan setting record highs last week. That's right, I said Japan, as the Nikkei 225 hit its first all-time high since 1989. They thought it would be a lost decade for Japanese markets and the economy, but it turned into a lost 30-plus years for the land of the rising sun. But the sun also rises, and this time, it's AI giving it power. Shares of two of Japan's biggest semiconductor component manufacturing and testing equipment companies, Tokyo Electron and Advantest, have doubled in the past year. Guess what? They both do a lot of business with NVIDIA, which is the kind of company you want to keep if you like to see your share price and your sales spike. As for NVIDIA, which is now the third biggest stock in the S&P 500, supplanting Alphabet and Amazon, what can we say? Its blowout earnings and strong guidance last week propelled a 16% surge in its share price in one day worth $277 billion worth of market cap. That's the largest single-day surge in market value for any company ever. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? We are, Maximus, but what did I tell you about throwing swords? Stop that. Hard to believe, though, that Meta held that title for the largest single-day surge just a few weeks ago when its market cap popped $202 billion in one day. These are the laws of large numbers, fellow passengers. When these big stocks move, they move markets. The market cap-weighted markets, that is. To wit, the market cap-weighted S&P 500 advanced 1.6% last week. The Nasdaq, also market-weighted, jumped 1.4%. And the Dow, which is price-weighted, popped 1.3% for the week, hitting, you guessed it, another all time high. These higher highs come in bunches, but it looked like the bunch was coming unraveled over the past couple of weeks, and it still might. There's always a chance for a real pullback or a correction after markets hit all-time highs, especially when market breadth has been so thin and one single stock, NVIDIA in this case, can stir so much enthusiasm. Which leads us right into our big three for the week. Both institutional and retail investors have been on the NVIDIA bandwagon for over a year, and they have been handsomely rewarded. Shares are up 230% over the past 12 months. Option traders have also been minting money on the NVIDIA calls, and the calls keep coming. According to the Wall Street Journal, traders spent $20 billion on NVIDIA options alone last week. Call volumes or bets that shares of NVIDIA will rise in the coming month top $1 million last Thursday, their highest level since November, and a lot of those options are for $1,300 calls. Keep in mind that shares in NVIDIA are trading around $788 per share as we open for business on Monday. That's a pretty big jump from here, and at that share price, NVIDIA would have a market cap of $3.2 trillion. That's a lot of bullishness. And it's not just NVIDIA. Other AI-related chip makers and companies like Supermicrocomputer, which also surged last week, are hot trades in the options market, and a lot of retail option traders are jumping on these trades too. I'm not saying this won't end well, but hot money and sentiment can shift quickly, and when everyone is so bullish, you gotta wonder how and when this will turn. Number two, 
You know all that bad breath we've been talking about lately? Well, it's actually getting better, which could be a good sign for the durability of this year bull market. Yeah, the S&P 500 Equal Weighted Index closed at a two-year high last week. The Equal Weighted Index does what it sounds like. It measures all 500 components of the S&P 500 equally, giving them a fixed weight, which is 0.2% of the index at rebalance. Believe it or not, the Equal Weighted S&P 500 outperforms the market weighted S&P 500 over most time horizons, but certainly not over the past 20 years. But for market watchers, higher highs for the equal weighted index is a sign of broader market performance across the stock market. That's ultimately a good thing for long-term index investors. We want broader participation over sustained periods of time. And number three, if you think you're seeing a lot more cardboard boxes lately, you're not crazy, and it's a good economic indicator, according to Schwab's chief global investment strategist, Jeff Kleintop, a past guest here on The Express. Demand for cardboard and corrugated boxes is one of Kleintop's favorite economic indicators. It was also one of Alan Greenspan's too, by the way. Kleintop says, boxes are back, baby. He points out that during the last three to four recessions over the past 30 years, demand for cardboard fell by 10 to 15%. Kleintop noticed cardboard declining last year in what he called a cardboard box recession. We talked about it right here on The Express. Demand was down 10%. But good news, it's come all the way back. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and we're going to get some fresh data on new home sales, national home prices, durable goods orders, and construction prices. Let's see if that cardboard box indicator holds up. We know new home sales have been slow, and with mortgage rates hovering back around 7%, they're going to stay that way for a while. Prices, though, are likely to remain elevated due to tight supply. We're going to keep a close eye this week on Treasury yields. Both long-term and short-term U.S. bond yields piped up again last week, despite the rally in the stock market. We'll see what happens to them with the release of the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index release on Thursday. The PCE, as it's known, is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, of course, and if it rises more than expected, like the CPI and the PPI did a couple weeks ago, hopes for that Fed cut rate in May are going to keep dwindling. Treasury yields are going to pop, and that could stall the market's re-rally. On the earnings front, widely tracked companies including Lowe's, Anheuser-Busch, Paramount, Dell, AutoZone, Domino's Pizza, and Monster Beverage will all report results. NVIDIA will prove a tough act to follow indeed. Side note, Domino's Pizza and Monster Beverage, two of the best performing stocks of the past 30 years. Interesting. We'll also get the Consumer Confidence Report for February on Tuesday. Recent surveys show that we think inflation is going to keep slowing and we're feeling better about the economy. Are those false hopes or are we feeling the cardboard indicator vibes too? We'll find out. It's choppy at the top, and this stock market is causing us to buckle up a little tighter than usual for all the reasons we've been talking about lately. Heavy concentration of just a few stocks driving the market to all-time highs, expectations about if and when the Fed will start cutting rates, geopolitical uncertainty, election uncertainty and unease, a broken bond market, the list goes on and on and on, and you're going to hear a lot of the same refrains and explanations from the traditional sources and voices across financial media. But there are a few market watchers and macro strategists out there who prefer to swim upstream. They zig when others zag, if you will, and they're willing to challenge a lot of the conventional wisdom out there, and more often than not, they are right. Jim Bianco is one of those thinkers. He's made a career out of going against the grain with rigorous independent research as the president and macro strategist at Bianco Research in the great city of Chicago, and he is our very special guest this week on The Express. Thanks for coming on the show, Jim. I'm a big fan for a very long time. 
Well, thank you very much. Uh, I love the salmon swim upstream, spawn, and die. So hopefully I won't do the second half of that. <laughs> no, you. but you do the first part pretty well. And you've been doing it your whole career. I've been watching your work since I was at Bloomberg back in the day. And that goes back a long time. So let's start with this. What, Jim, if any period in history does the current market environment remind you of? Oh, I mean, it depends on which market environment we're talking about, but there's a lot. I mean, Obviously, the AI period, the AI uh, boom that we've seen now is very reminiscent of the late 90s with the internet boom, all the way down to people using the same analogy that the picks and shovels play of AI is NVIDIA and the picks and shovels play in the late 90s was Cisco. Cisco's March 2000 peak, which was 24 years ago, it's still below it right now. If you're talking about in the bond market, the period that we're looking at right now is probably closer to the late 60s, early 70s, and so is inflation, very close to the late 60s and early 70s. If you're talking about crypto, it's probably you know 16th century uh, Dutch tulips or something like that. So it's all over the lot. It's got to be the tulips, right? Right, exactly. Exactly. Some of the terminology probably applies from that period as well. So a lot of investors are betting on several rate cuts this year by the Fed. We've heard this over and over again. The timing is uncertain. Powell kind of pushed that off several months. You don't actually believe we're going to see that many rate cuts. You write in one of your recent notes, if stocks continue to soar, animal spirits are going to remain high and the economy will show no signs of a soft landing. The probabilities are going to continue to deflate about these potential rate cuts. Give me your reasoning behind that. Yeah, I started the year, uh, just to put a number on it, thinking that when the Fed said that they'd cut rates three times, I was between zero and two. And right now, I'm probably closer to zero than I am to two um, in thinking about the rate cuts. And I think it's very simple. First of all, the cynical answer is Wall Street forecasts what it wants. It doesn't forecast what's necessarily going to happen. Now, sometimes what it wants happens. So their forecasts look prescient. But other times it doesn't happen. And what Wall Street wants right now is they want lower interest rates. They want lower interest rates because they see high rates, a 5% money market fund is competition for the stock market. Why would I buy stocks? I could put my money in a money market fund. Uh, the stock market's returned me you know, 6 or 7% in the last couple of years. Uh, so it's a money market fund. It's returned me 6 or 7% in the last couple of years. A little bit better. You know, stock market's done better lately but it didn't do well in, in 2022. So it wants lower rates. So it starts off by predicting recession, predicting soft landing, predicting that inflation is going to come down. And what I've been arguing is, if you look at the data, none of that's happening. The economy is doing okay. It's, you know, to stick with the airplane metaphor, it's no landing. It's running at its potential or its growth rate full on, and it continues to do that. The inflation rate, We've termed this, coined this term, Wall Street has, called the last mile, that when we got the inflation rate down to 3%, that we were going to then engage in the last mile to 2 I think we're already done with the last mile, and it was getting it down to 3%, uh, and that that inflation is going to stay sticky. And then if you add on to that the animal spirits that we're seeing, not only in the stock market, but in crypto, I think when you sum it all up, I think the Fed is going to be find it very difficult to see data or reason to cut rates. Now they'll crouch it, you know, in the language that you're hearing from Wall Street. There's some Wall Street economists that are coming out now and, and doubting whether or not the Fed will cut rates in June. We already know that March, the March Fed meeting and the May meeting have been priced out. No rate cuts at those. 
but now they're starting to doubt June. But then they always go on. But don't wait. The July meeting, they'll, they'll, we'll see the first rate cut. That's what we're going to always do. We're always going to tell you it's 90 days away. And in 90 days, we're going to tell you it's 90 days away. And in 90 days, we're going to tell you it's 90 days away. And that's kind of the place we're going to go. And why? The data is just not there when it comes to inflation. It's too sticky at 3%. And I think growth is too high at around 25 or 3%. And you also talk about the fact that rates are probably going to move higher and you're looking for what we call a bear steepening of the yield curve. Tell us what that is. This is a great big term on Investopedia, very popular in the last year or so, but this could uninvert the yield curve, as you say. So explain that dynamic to our listeners here, because this could be very important for implications across the capital markets. Yeah. So uh, there's two terms in there. Bear for the bond market just means higher interest rates or lower prices. That's where the bear comes from. And steepening means that you will see long-term rates move up faster than short-term rates. Now, that has not been the case for the last couple of years, that you've had short-term rates move up. And that's why we have an inverted yield curve where short rates are higher than long rates. So if we get into a period where interest rates are moving higher and long-term interest rates are moving up faster, you could see this, the curve steepen, eventually maybe even uninvert. If the curve uninverts, and that's kind of a made-up term too, you know, go from negative to positive, positive meaning long-term rates are higher than short-term rates. On a rising rate environment, that's usually associated with a lack of confidence about inflation. The Federal Reserve doesn't have inflation under control. The economy has inflation that's still too hot. I, as a long-term bond investor, are demanding more premium to hold long-term bonds, or that's a fancy way of saying a higher interest rate. And that's why you would see a bear steepening. Now, typically what happens to get a bull steepening, typically what happens is rates are falling, short rates fall faster because the Fed is cutting rates and that uninverts the yield curve. That's what Wall Street keeps wanting and hoping for why they keep incessantly talking about rate cuts is they want the bull steepening. That's usually a very good environment, at least in the early stages of when that happens. The bear steepening environment just pretends problems with inflation. And unfortunately, that's where I think we might be heading. A quick word about inflation before you know, make myself clear. I am in the camp that the Fed's target of, of 2% inflation is going to be more like 3 or 4. I am not in the camp that inflation is going to be 8 10 or Zimbabwe or something crazy like that. We're just going to have this sticky inflation that's just not going to give us these rate cuts. It's going to keep interest rates with it starting with a five handle. And it's going to continue to give that competition to stocks. Why, you know, in 2019, we invented the word Tina. There is well no alternative because money market funds were zero and bonds were 2%. What are you going to do with your money? You got to put it in stocks. Money market funds are 5.3%, which is where they are right now. And the long-term potential for the stock market is around 8% per annum. Yeah, I could get two-thirds to 70%. There is an alternative. And that's why Wall Street desperately wants rates to be cut and interest rates to fall to get that alternative off the table. Let's swing back to equities, especially the giants. I mean, NVIDIA's rise this week has been incredible, but really it's been over the last couple of years, really the last year. But you also have Amazon now joining the Dow. Sign of the top for you, Jim, or just a recognition that companies like Amazon are just more representative of the US economy in 2024. Yeah, I think it's, it's a little bit of both. It could be potentially a sign of a top because typically what gets put into an index, what gets put into an index is a company that is so thoroughly outperformed and so thoroughly captured 
everybody's imagination that it goes in. What comes out of the index? Some beaten down stock, some beaten down company that everybody's feel like it's been left for dead. You know, the great example of the last couple of years was two years ago, Tesla was put in the S&P 500. They had resisted putting Tesla in the S&P 500. It was far and away the biggest company. They finally put it in. And then they took out a company called uh, Apartment Investments, AIV. And for the next year and a half, AIV that left the S&P 500 actually outperformed Tesla. And so that's typically what happens. So I wouldn't be surprised. Amazon going in, Walgreens coming out. Talk about a company that has been struggling and a company that's got issues. And this is a recognition that it's struggling. It's got issues. It lost its status in the Dow. I wouldn't be very. I wouldn't be surprised if Walgreens winds up over the next year, year and a half, outperforming Amazon for the same reason. Amazon, the expectations are so high, the price is so full that it really is going to be hard for it to match those expectations. Walgreens has no expectations, and its stock is so dirt cheap, and everybody's turned their back on it, and that's why it's out of the index. So typically, when companies do join these big indexes, the index managers have to buy. Usually, you see a flood of buying, but that usually peters out over time or it levels out over time. But now we have these massive tech companies, and Amazon's one of them. Meta's another. Uh, NVIDIA, obviously, we mentioned. But some of these that are now acting in a little bit like safety stocks, some of them offering dividends. We're seeing these massive tech companies, big profitable tech companies, finally offering some sweetener for investors. How does that change the game when you see that happening in this sector among these giant multi-trillion dollar stocks? Well, it, it, it definitely has changed the game because the MAG7, just I was looking at it last night, is now over 30% of the S&P 500. Uh, the top five MAG stocks are 26% of the S&P 500. You got to go back to the 1960s when AT&T was 11 or 12% of the S&P and IBM was another big waiting. Both of those companies were eventually sued for being monopolies to find the last time that you've seen a concentration like this. And what's unique about this concentration is it's all in these disruptive technology companies as well. Everybody's on to this idea that this is the internet 2.0 is what we're seeing with artificial intelligence. And that's probably correct that the promise of it being the internet 2.0 is True. But like I mentioned with Cisco earlier, there's what artificial intelligence means for the economy and jobs and culture. And then there's what it means for investing. Well, in, like I mentioned with Cisco, in 2000, Cisco ran up, you know, Credit Suisse famously called it the first potential trillion dollar market cap company. We have several of them now. Cisco was never one of them. And 24 years later, the promise of the internet from the late 90s has largely been fulfilled. But Cisco stock is not at a new high. Uh, and the reason is, is because what we, you know, the question is, all that stuff that you hope AI is going to do in the next 10 or 15 years, is that already in the price right now? That we've already priced it all in? And that you might have to wait 10 or 15 years to see if there's further promise in order to see some higher prices. Now, the biggest drug when it comes to investing is momentum. And these stocks have momentum like crazy. And I always you know, find it interesting that managers will talk about cash flow and they'll talk about strategies and they'll talk about management and they'll talk about products and they'll talk about the economy and everything else, but nothing gets their juices flowing like momentum. Just, you know, as the crypto crowd would call it, number go up. 
And you got number go up in a lot of these stocks and they're getting all of themselves very excited. That doesn't mean we're going to peak now. But I guess the question is, tell me what your bullish case is for NVIDIA, what it could potentially be in the next 10 years. And then tell me that, you know, you think it could be a $1.9 trillion stock. And NVIDIA is a $1.9 trillion stock today. And so has that already been fulfilled? That's the question you have to ask yourself. What is its potential over the next 10 years? And that's what you see when you see strong momentum and, and excitement is they're talking about what's going to be the prospects of AI. But the question you have to ask, is it already in the price? And I think a lot of it already is. And that momentum will continue for a while from here. But I would be surprised if it continues for months and years, um, like a lot of people are thinking or hoping. Yeah, and investors typically not that patient, but they do love to see the momentum and we love to run with the bulls. And that's exactly what's happening right now across these big stocks, especially NVIDIA. All right, well, I want to touch on Bitcoin briefly, especially the spot Bitcoin ETF. You have been one of the few voices out there that say, you know, this is, I mean, this is not going to be the game changer where all of a sudden this is now a retail uh, product where my financial planner or advisor can put me in it. It can be custodian with the rest of my assets. Yes, all that's true, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're in for a huge flood and a huge spike in Bitcoin prices. What's your take on that? So everybody knows where I'm coming from. I have been in the crypto space for seven years. I have owned various cryptos for seven years. I own them in a cold storage and a hot storage wallet on chain, as they, as they like to tell about it. Why am I such a big fan of the crypto space? I look at the rest of the world and I'm thinking Middle East, Africa, Latin America, Asia. And I see billions of people that live in countries that have shaky currencies and unstable banking systems. And we know that the West doesn't have shaky, or has maybe you call it less shaky currency and a more stable banking system. And the West has had 150 years to bring that to the rest of the world, and they haven't been able to do it. So an alternative financial system that promises a hard cap on money, that promises a decentralized, permissionless way that I can own my value in a wallet that no government or nobody can take away from me, I think has a lot of potential. And so that's why I've been very, very optimistic about it. The space is not ready yet to deliver on that potential. It still needs more development. It probably needs more uh, venture capital money. It needs more coders to try and, and develop this space out. Along the same lines, while that's happening, You've got this rampant speculation that's going on that is a reminiscence of a Vegas casino with number go up and everything else. When it comes to the Bitcoin ETF, I've said, you know, people are saying this is going to get more adoption. Adoption meaning people are going to turn to Bitcoin, own it. They're going to start to understand it. And this will be a gateway to them doing what I've done and to get into cold storage and stuff. And I've pushed back on that and I've said, one, you're talking about centralized ownership of a decentralized asset. Those two things are incompatible with each other. You want to build the crypto space to be outside of the current financial system, not bring it in. Two, most of the people that are there are there for number go up, maybe over a longer period of time than a couple of days. And they're, they're only going to be interested in it if it makes them money that these cryptos go up in price and stay up in price. I don't think that they're going to buy Bitcoin ETFs or maybe if the Ethereum ETF comes 
to buy that, watch them go up and go, I should move my money out of my Fidelity account or out of my Schwab account, and I should move it on chain, and I should own it in a cold storage device. Here's what's called a ledger, you know, and my all my cryptos are on this thing. It's a USB is what it is. I don't think that that's, this one is going to lead um, to the other. So all you're doing is you're centralizing it. And one of the things that I'm afraid of by centralizing it is you're going to give some powerful players and their regulators the ability to control this system. And the beauty about this system was it was supposed to be outside of their control. And then hopefully one day you would see the adoption in some of these areas. One quick example for you. One of the countries with the deepest adoption rate of cryptos in the world is Nigeria. They banned it three years ago because the Nigerian government and Nigerian central bank saw cryptos as being competition and a threat. And they wanted to continue to hold on to their corrupt system that they had. But the people of Nigeria, desperate for something else, have adopted crypto like few other countries, even though it's been banned in their country. This is what crypto is trying to bring to the world. And by getting it sucked into a bunch of people on a golf course in Greenwich, Connecticut, wondering, should I buy the spot BTF and will Bitcoin go to 200,000, I think gets it away from that mission. And that's why I've been critical of it. Yeah, that's a great analogy. And that's exactly what happens out there on those wonderful golf courses in Greenwich, Connecticut. Some nice ones up there. All right. What story? We've covered some ground here, but what story or theme, in your opinion, Jim, is not getting enough attention right now? What are we missing giving all the attention? Financial media, guilty as charged, pays to NVIDIA, the MAG7, the Bitcoin ETFs, the record highs. What is nobody not focused on that needs to be focused on? I think I'll say not appreciated enough because uh, I'll say what's happening in the Red Sea and what's happening with global shipping. Now, yes, you know, 60 Minutes did a story on it this past weekend. Uh, and so it's there, but we're not appreciating what it means for the global economy. The global economy runs on just-in-time inventory. When you look at those container ships, and that's really what we're talking about more than uh, crude oil tankers. Uh, what's in those boxes? We automatically assume it's cons- it's end use end user consumer goods, something that goes straight to the store and we buy. Well, a lot of that stuff is parts for other manufacturing processes. And in a just in time inventory, it's not that I order stuff. Maybe it's you know semiconductor chips from Taiwan, and it gets put into a it gets put into a cargo box, and it gets shipped to me. It's not that I will get it. It's when do I get it? Because every day I expect shipments to show up for for parts so I could finish my process and send it on down the line. And that this is going to snarl that just-in-time inventory system. Not to the extent that we had in 2020. That one also had the reopening of a COVID shutdown on top of it and stuff. But in a world where we're saying inflation is dead and we're normalizing the economy, we could be going back to more supply chain, I'll call it difficulties as opposed to problems. But in a world where, to go back to what we talked about in the beginning, where everybody wants the Fed to cut rates and they want interest rates to go down and they want the competition for stocks to go away. So I could yell at people that have money in money market funds and say, you have to get out of those. Tina, Tina, Tina. If we do wind up seeing snarled shipping processes leading to higher goods inflation because manufacturing processes get stalled, We're going to get more inflation. Maybe it's half a percent more inflation, but that's enough to really just kill off the idea that we're going to see rate cuts. 
Fascinating. And that's not what I was expecting, but that's why we talked to you because you bring the unexpected. Let's go out on this. You know, Investopedia is a site founded on our financial terms, our dictionary. You're a CMT. You have an MBA. You're a macro strategist. You've had a great big career of looking at financial markets all over the world. What is your favorite financial term, indicator, pattern? What is the one that just makes Jim Bianco's heart sing right now? All right. So I'm going to go with terms. uh, And I think a lot of the Crypto meme terms, I, I've been really enamored by YOLO, you only live once. Lost porn is another one that's my new favorite one. Lost porn is don't go on Twitter or X and brag about your profits. Go on and brag about all your losses. I actually think that's a healthy thing for people to do. Don't tell me about your brilliant trades. Go tell me about your losses. Helps keep you more fo- focused and, and, and nimble. Uh, my Probably my favorite term, though, is DGEN, that D-E-G-E-N. That is a crypto term that is short for degenerate gambler. They know what they are. At least they put a, t- they put a, uh, a term on it that probably accurately describes what a lot of them are as well, too. So I like a lot of the meme and uh, crypto terms that we've been seeing lately. Yeah, we, th- we love those terms as well. DGEN, not in the Investopedia lexicon yet, but it will be there very soon because I have a feeling that's not going away. Jim Bianco, the macro strategist and president at Bianco Research, somebody we've been following a very long time. Folks, we'll link to his research and his team's research in the show notes. Thanks so much for coming on The Express. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes from the GOAT, Warren Buffett, of course, and that term is float, insurance float to be exact, one of Buffett's favorite flavors. Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway reported its fourth quarter and full year results for 2023 over the weekend, and the conglomerate posted net earnings for the year of $96.2 billion. Not too shabby, but Buffett doesn't buy into net earnings because they fluctuate too much for his liking. But within those earnings was a 47% surge in insurance investment income, bringing in $9.6 billion for the business. That insurance investment income comes from the float, which, according to our favorite website, is the money that an insurance company gets to hold on to between the time consumers pay premiums and the time they make claims on their policies. They put that money to work, investing it wherever they can get the best and most stable returns. And no one does it better than Berkshire's insurance businesses like Geico and General Re. And if you hadn't noticed, insurance costs have been skyrocketing. Auto insurance costs have been rising at the fastest pace since 1976, and insurance companies have been making hay off of our float. We are actually going to let Warren Buffett take us out this week as well. As many of you know, Charlie Munger, Berkshire's vice chairman, passed away last November at the age of 99. He's one of my heroes, and to no surprise, he's Buffett's hero. In Buffett's letter to shareholder this past weekend, he honored his friend, his mentor, and his partner. I'm just going to read a few words from that letter. Buffett writes, In reality, Charlie was the architect of the present Berkshire, and I acted as the general contractor to carry out the day-to-day construction of his vision. Charlie never sought to take credit for his role as creator, but instead let me take the bows and receive the accolades. In a way, his relationship with me was part older brother, part loving father. Even when he knew he was right, he gave me the reins, and when I blundered, he never never reminded me of my mistake. In the physical world, great buildings are linked to their architect, while those who had poured the concrete or installed the windows are soon forgotten. Berkshire has become a great company. Though I have long been in charge of the construction crew, Charlie should forever be credited with being the architect. 
Thanks for joining us this week, as always, and special thanks to Jim Bianco for joining The Express. We've been fans for a very long time, and we're going to link to his research and his posts and all the reports we cited on this week's episode. Find those links in the show notes wherever you ride The Express, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line. 